really grateful um, to David and Allie and all of you from the House of Prayer who have been serving during the summit. And um, so just wanted to say thank you for that. It's been incredible to be hosted here and to be here. Um, actually, since Grant and David and I were here, the Lord spoke to all three of us separately um, that we should do this year's summit in San Antonio, which is how we decided to come here, which is kind of cool, right, guys? I mean, it was totally the Lord, right? So um, it has been great. Just really honored. David and Allie even let me sleep in David's Bible room, which is <laughs> a tremendous honor. It was so anointed, it was hard to sleep, but I, I managed. I managed. So anyway, I really love these guys and grateful for uh, their partnership and for all of you in the House of Prayer, grateful for your partnership as well um, in doing this summit. All right. So I want to share with you guys the vision of 10 days, and then I'm going to get into some spe specific teaching around some of the themes of 10 days. But to talk about 10 days, I first have to talk about John 17. Uh, because the vision of 10 days came out of an encounter I had, and the encounter came out of an encounter first with the Scripture, with John 17. Jesus prays here. It's amazing, right? It's his final uh, night before the crucifixion. He's about to go to the cross. Um, and it's incredible because he breaks out of the present moment and all that he's about to go through in verse 20, John 17, verse 20. And he says, I do not pray for those, these alone, the ones that are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So this is incredible, right? He's He's got all of this on his mind. He breaks out of that moment, and he literally starts thinking about you, right? That's pretty cool. Um, and he says, here's what he's thinking about you, and I'm using that as a you plural, you in, as an individual, but also us, right? Here's what, he's, here's what he's thinking about in relationship to us. He's thinking, Father, and here's what he's asking the Father, Father, let them be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us so that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory that you gave me, I have given them so that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in oneness and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So I like to call this, what Jesus is praying for here, John 17 unity or oneness, John 17 oneness. And I was talking to some people recently, and I realized they were talking about John 17 unity, but what they meant was people being in the same room, not fighting, right? How many people know that it's great to be in the same room, not fighting? You know, like it beats being in the same room fighting for one thing, right? That's not good. Or, you know, not being in the same room and not yeah, and fighting, right? I mean, we have technology now, so we can fight pretty much anywhere. You can fight with people in any room. <laughs> What's happening on Twitter? Oh, I want to get in a fight. All right. <laughs> Just saying, right? So people are thinking of John 17 unity as being in the same room, not fighting. Like, Let's get a bunch of pastors in the same room and get them not to fight, and that mean, will mean we're one. But that's not actually what Jesus is praying for here, is it? 
because he makes a comparison. He lets us know by making a comparison what he's actually praying for. He says he wants us to be one just as something. Just as is, is the way we say exactly like, right? Just as comes from a Greek phrase that means just as. It's incredible. It's just like the same as in English. In Greek, if you want to say you want so, that something's like something else, you say as. And if you want to say it's really, really like it, like identical, you say just as, just like in English. And that's the construction that's there um, in the Greek. It means just as, exactly like. So Jesus is praying that the Father, as the Father and Son are one, that his followers would be one exactly like they are, Right? So is that, do you, think that's, do you think the Father and the Son are in the same room not fighting? Or do you think there's more going on? It's a lot more. In fact, John 17, unity has about as much to do with being in the same room not fighting. Oh, thank you. This is brotherly love. Let it continue. Um, it has about as much to do with that as a fire, you know, outside a campfire on a cold night has to do with a star, right? They're about the same, it's about the same comparison. Because to be one as the Father and Son are one is to actually participate and be involved in the divine nature. Because it's an essential part of who God is. His oneness. Out of this oneness, which is like the energy source that created everything that we see, Ah, it's amazing. How can, I'm, I'm blown away by it every time I think about it. And how can he even be praying that we'd be one like that? We're people, right? Who's ever lived with a person? All right, right. We can't even figure out who's going to do the dishes, much less be one as the Father and Son are one. If this wasn't in the Bible and someone told me this, I would laugh in their face, right? But it's in the Bible. Not only that, Jesus is not praying. Sometimes people say, oh, when we're in heaven, we'll be one like the Father and Son are one, which is still scandalous, but that's not even what he's praying. He's praying it in the midst of the world. That means in the midst of this age. He's, he's, he's setting it up for after he leaves, between then and when he returns, he's praying for the church to be one, just as the Father and Son are one. And friends, it's not happening right now, right? It's not happening. Now, we have a measure of unity and we have a measure of oneness. But would anyone say the church in San Antonio is one as the Father and Son are one? No. And the church around the globe. We can see that's not true. We can see we've got something real, but we can also see it ain't what it says right here, right? So, but I have this great news for you, and that's that Jesus is good at praying. <laughs> right? And he gets what he prays for. Right? And then when he went to the cross, he guaranteed it in blood, right? He gets what he pays for, too. This is part of that lamb, the lamb getting the reward of his suffering is to get the answer to his prayer. Does that make sense? So when I started to see this, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. I was just a college kid, but I, I saw this, and I'm like, wow, you're really into the church. You really like these people. They're kind of old and not cool. I'm not sure I like them as a 22-year-old, but you do. Huh. Maybe you're right and I'm wrong. 
And I started to seek him. It just changed how I saw the church. And I started to seek him, and I'm like, wow, Lord, where we are now isn't where we're always going to be. How can I be part of getting us where we're going? Right? So, friends, you've got to learn to love fellow believers and love the church, even the places that are totally dysfunctional and awful. Because what they are now is not what they're going to be. Amen? Even in this age. And so I started asking God, how can I be part of seeing Jesus receive the answer to his prayer? And uh, I went on this, I didn't know what to do, but I, I read that people in the Bible who worked for God had done these Daniel fasts for 21 days, and then like in Daniel 10, and an angel comes and talks to him, and I was like, I'm going to give this a shot. Let's see if this works. <laughs> See if the angel comes. So I didn't see an angel, but I did have this uh, encounter with the Lord. And the Lord spoke to me, and he just spoke this phrase that really was very uh, cryptic and mysterious. He said, Babylon refuses to mourn, but my people will mourn before I return. And he said, call my people to 10 days of fasting, mourning, and repentance from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, which is the the fall biblical feast, the fall Jewish feast, the day of trumpets and the day of atonement. It creates a 10-day period. It's called the days of awe. And then I asked, well, who is this for? And he showed me this map that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I knew this was supposed to go around the nation and around the world. And that really royally freaked me out. I literally, I think my literal thought was like, what have I got myself into? And... Um, Finally, he showed me a city that had stopped everything for 10 days. And people weren't going to work and they weren't going to school. Um, businesses were closed. Normal life had ceased. People weren't watching Netflix. They were just seeking the face of God. And it was as though you were having Revelation 4 and 5, that throne room reality in a city for 10 days, and this city was inundated in the glory of God. It was like this thick, golden, honey substance over the city. And I knew this city would never be the same. And these two questions just came out of my spirit. God, how would you respond if a city sought you in this way? And my second question was, is this how you're going to answer Jesus' prayer in John 17? So that's 10 days. Um, it's rooted in Jesus' prayer in John 17, right? I believe that Jesus is going to receive the answer to his prayer. Now, how can we as his people posture ourselves in order to see that happen, even in our lifetimes or at least to set up our children for that? How can we do that? And it's not going to be through doing the same old things that we've done, but it's going to be through doing something new and something a little bit weird and radical, right? something where we, we stop and seek his face, humble ourselves, and then in that place of humility, he's going to pour out grace. Because this supernatural unity, oneness as the Father is one with the Son, we know it's only a gift from God, right? We can't get it by being really well-behaved. <laughs> so um, I mentioned that phrase, Babylon refuses to mourn but my people will mourn before I return. So I want to talk a little bit with you tonight about what it means to mourn and what kind of mourning we want you to do during 10 days. And I promise this will have application for the other 355 days of the year as well. 
So mourn is not a particularly attractive word, is it? Um, when in the early days, before anyone had ever done this, when I would be sharing this, it was very common. I'd talk to people. They're like, wow, this sounds really great. I love it. I love the unity thing. Can we get rid of the mourning? I'm like, gosh, I wish. It's not my, you know, it, it's like when you're stewarding something, it's not yours. It's not like you just get to change it. I'm like, how can you even ask me that? But that was just the heart where people were coming from. And people said things like, you know, people in the church have enough mourning. Like, they're sad enough. They need a message of hope. They need joy. I get that. I, I love hope and joy, too. Um, so this has led me on this journey of learning what it means to mourn. Um, most fundamentally, I think mourning is about what we don't have. Okay? We mourn because we've lost something or someone that we need or love. We mourn because we don't have something that we desperately need or love greatly. And we mourn because of a great loss, absence, or great suffering. So mourning is about what we don't have and what we've lost. Okay? So it's a time to acknowledge what we're missing, to come to grips with it. Not to gl glaze it over, but just to say, well, I've lost something or I'm lacking something that I need. But it's not without hope. In fact, this is actually how we get hope, right? Because in God's economy, when we recognize what we lack and what we've lost, that positions us to receive it. Does that make sense? So that's the motion that we need to make to actually get the things that we need. Um, so it's a mourning in hope. It's a longing for the promises of God. It's aligning our hearts with God's priorities so that we may see them all come on earth as it is in heaven. So mourning is about what we lack and what we've lost. So during 10 days, we're focusing on those things. Why are we focusing on them? Because God wants to give them to us, but we have to come to a posture of even recognizing our need, right, before we, that can happen. Okay, mourning is about humility. If there was another word I could choose to replace mourning, it would be humility, right? There is a scriptural principle that you can use in your life to always be opposed by God if you so desire. And it says that God opposes the proud, right? So if you want to be opposed by God, you just need to move in pride. It's really easy. And I'm sure all of us, has anyone ever felt that? Anyone ever been opposed by God? I know I have. I'm like, this is not cool. <laughs> Why do you hate me? Oh, got it. I'm proud. Okay. But there's a simple way to ensure the flow of God's grace in your life, and that's to be humble because the Scripture says that God gives grace to the humble. This is a very simple formula. When you enter into humility, when you posture yourself in humility, you will, you will receive the grace of God. It's not rocket science. God will release grace to you. So 10 days is a time to intentionally humble ourselves in multiple ways. We do that through fasting. We do that through prayer and worship, right? When we pray and worship, we're humbling ourselves before God. We do it through confessing sin. We do it through repentance. When we confess sin, we're acknowledging to God, you're right and I'm wrong. And when we repent, we're actually doing a full 180 and we're starting to walk in the right way. We're starting to think how God thinks. 
um, we humble ourselves by connecting and uniting with other believers because we're acknowledging in that moment, I'm not sufficient to myself, but I need you, right? And we are a body, aren't we? That's just acknowledging reality. Um, and then we humble ourselves by stopping our normal activity to rest. I think this is maybe the biggest thing for Americans, right? What other nation exists where people, when you ask them, hey, how are you doing? They're like, oh, I'm busy. I'm busy. Like, don't get me wrong. I love it. I love being an American. I love that we're like hardworking and hard driving and we love to solve problems. But God is saying, hey, guys, you've got a great gift, but lay off it for a while. Rest. Stop. Unplug. Humble yourself before me, right? That's a cultural blind spot for us, but that's something God is looking for from us as Americans to enter into these Sabbath days. So when we humble ourselves, fundamentally we position ourselves to receive grace. Can you imagine a whole city humbling, our, humbling themselves, right? We know what happens when we do it as individuals because we've had that experience personally, even if it's just in salvation, even if that's it, of just saying, God, I need you. Save me from my sin. Bring me to heaven. You know, you experience a moment of receiving the grace through your humility. But what if a whole city would do that? What, ha what would happen in the spirit is it would create like a low pressure system in the spirit that would draw the reign of God into the region. You'd have like an, an outpouring. Does that make sense? And that's what we're actually seeing happen in cities where people actually do this. In fact, David was telling me last time when you guys did 10 days at San Pedro, that's literally what happened. It rained for eight days in the midst of a drought. So it can happen in the natural, but it's also in the spirit as well. Okay, I'm doing good. All right. Morning is about desire. You might not link those two words, but, but morning is really a longing, right? There's a sadness because something's been taken away or something is lacking. And so it's about desire. This is a great scripture. Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you desire. He doesn't say, ask whatever I desire, right? He says, ask whatever you desire, and it shall be done for you. When we remain in him and his words remain in us, that's what's happening when we're taking 10 days to just abide in him, right, and rest in him. It's going to create desires in us where whatever we ask will be granted. Isn't that cool? Ah. I think that's amazing. That, that is one of the most, that is one of the top five scripture promises in the whole Bible. I mean, just saying. It's like a blank check, right? But the requirement is to remain in him and let his words remain in us. That creates in us desires in us that are unique to us that the Father will always respond to and that his, his word to us is always yes. So God wants us to come together and be humble before him so that he can, his word can, can come into us and we can come into him and desires can be crafted in his heart that are the kind of prayers that he can answer. Those desires are the prayers. Have you ever prayed for something and not really wanted it? 
It doesn't work. It doesn't work. If you want your, your prayer to be effectual and fervent, it has to touch the place of desire in your own heart. And our own hearts and our own desires are so messed up sometimes that we need these times of abiding in him for the Lord to do a deep work and give us a reset so that he can begin to answer our prayers. But what's really happening is he's changing our desires. Our desires are being conformed to his will. They're being transformed by his words. And then it's a sound that he responds to every time, every single time. Oh, Jesus. Oh, he's so good. I know. When our heart begins to merge with his heart, it's going to create dreams in our heart and desires in our heart that come out of that union. This is like what Jesus prayed in John 17. That's why we know the Father's going to answer his prayer. These things are going to begin to come out of us, and we're going to see increased answered prayer. Sometimes during 10 days, just to move into testimony mode for a minute, when God is really moving, it's like John 20 and 21, where John says he closes both chapters by saying basically the same thing. So many things happen through Jesus that we can't write it all down. That's literally what begins to happen during these times. It's such an acceleration of divine activity that you couldn't record it if you wanted to. And that's happening because of this principle here, remaining in him, his words remaining in us, and then those desires being answered. God is moving in an increased way. Okay. So 10 days is a time of mourning, but don't be scared by that because mourning is posturing ourselves to receive joy, right? It's the humbling of ourselves. It's recognizing what we lack and what we've lost so that we can receive those things. What kind of things do we, we need to receive? There's three main themes during 10 days and three main focuses. Um, number one, 10 days is a time of personal repentance. So we need repentance. What does it mean to repent? I guess I should start by confessing. So when I first started in this journey, I had a very poor understanding of what it meant to repent. Um, I knew repentance was really important, but basically I confused confession and repentance, right? Confession is when we tell God or tell another person what our sins are. But repentance goes beyond that. Repentance is actually doing the whole 180 and beginning to walk in the right way. Does that, does that make sense? Um, repentance in Greek is metanoia. It means to have a change of mind. So it means to literally change the way we think, right? All of us are walking around thinking about things the wrong way. And God wants to take us into something like 10 days in order to get us thinking the right way, to fix our thinking. It doesn't have to be um, always, you know, tears and blah, blah, blah. Sometimes it's just he says something to you and it just shifts you. And you're instantly in repentance. I'll, I'll give you an example um, that's been ongoing for me. In 2015, during 10 days, the Lord spoke to me and he said, I want to give you a God-sized hope. And I knew, he didn't, he didn't say it with any kind of condemnation or judgment, but I knew immediately, oh, I don't have a God-sized hope. Like, I have a, I have, my hope is pretty small. That's okay. So... 
But that was the beginning of a journey of repentance towards, towards having God-sized hope. And it's been ongoing. It's been ongoing work. Um, but that's an example of, of repentance, right? I'm like, whoa, I'm okay. Apparently, I'm oriented the wrong way. I'm going go to start going in the direction the Lord wants me to go. Um, just a word of caution, repentance, mourning, humility, all these things, they're not about beating ourselves up, right? This isn't about taking ownership for every sin in the world or whipping ourselves into some kind of sorrowful frenzy. That's not what we're going for. Um, We want to just sit and stop and wait in stillness on the Lord and allow his spirit to bring true conviction. We want to humble ourselves before him and say, Lord, I, I don't even know how to fix me. I don't even know what's wrong with me, but you do. Would you come in and would you do a deep work in my life? And as we become available to him, it's going to bring personal transformation in our lives. I tell people all the time, this is not like going to get gas in the car. This is not getting an oil change. This is the kind of situation with the Lord where we take our soul as a car into his shop, right? And you you ever gone to the shop and the mechanic says, hey, why don't you leave it with me for a while, right? And you're like, oh, man, needs a lot of work, right? But this isn't just about fixing things that are broken. This is about, you know, him really coming in and making our rides nice, right? (laughs) Um, uh, You know, he's, he's going to come in and really bring, we're going to come out of this time like driving a new car basically because of all the work that he's going to do in us. And we need this and we need it on a regular basis. Um, some key scriptures that you can meditate in terms of personal repentance. I'm just going to give them really quick. So I've got five minutes. Um, Matthew five through seven, Ephesians one, thinking about our identity in Christ, Ephesians three, 14 to 21, our trajectory, where we're going in, in the Lord. John 13, 34 to 35, how to love one another. James 3 and James 4. Proverbs 3, Romans 12. I'm just giving you a few things. Um, but God can lead you in all kinds of ways that he wants to bring you into repentance. So 10 days is a time of deep, a deep work of repentance in your life. Um, 10 days is not just about you and God, though or your family and God, but 10 days is also a time for what I call intercessory mourning. So intercessory mourning, kind of my second thing, second activity that we're doing during 10 days. What does that mean? Daniel 9 is a great example of this. In this passage, Daniel reads the prophet Jeremiah, and he sees in Jeremiah that there's a 70-year window, and then Israel is going to return back to the land out of Babylon. And Jeremiah, uh, Daniel is like, awesome, great, God's got it, and he closes the book. And he just knows in the sovereignty of God it's going to happen. No, that's not actually what happens. Daniel reads this, and he's stirred to go into fasting and mourning and prayer for, for a day. And he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he repents and confesses sin before God. He's like, we don't deserve this, Lord. I don't deserve this. He owns the sins of his people. He stands in as an intercessor. And then in response to Jeremiah's prophetic word, and in response to Daniel's laying hold of that in the spirit, the children of Israel do go back after 70 years. 
But God is looking for participation from his people in fulfilling his promises. Amen? You guys are prayer people. You should get excited about this. There are four major promises that we lay hold of during 10 days. These are four things that we pray for. You guys pray for these things all the time in the house of prayer already. But but these are four major, I call them positive trends at the end of the age. These are four great things that are going to happen before Jesus returns. Number one, the gospel of the kingdom is going to go to all nations. Every nation and ethnic group is going to have a witness. That hasn't happened yet. We're going to lay hold of it in faith and ask, lay hold of the Lord to do that, to release that, to send laborers. Second, there's going to be unprecedented supernatural unity in the church, not in the same room, not fighting. Yes, as the Father and Son are one, we are one, right? That's going to happen. We need to lay hold of the Lord for it. And what I love is during 10 days, we're, we're laying hold of it through prayer, right? But we're also reaching out to our brothers, and we're doing it not just vertically interceding, but horizontally interceding with each other. Three, there's going to be a global outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is going to be unlike anything the world has ever seen. Joel 2.28, I will pour my spirit on all flesh before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That started in Acts 2, but it's ongoing, and I believe there's going to be an even greater uh, answer to that prophecy uh, before the Lord returns. And then finally, there's going to be widespread salvation among the Jewish people, Romans 9, 10, and 11. I'm going to leave that part for Grant just because of time. But that's something that we're going to see happen, and we've already begun to see it happen with the birthing of the Messianic movement 50 years ago. So this is like actually happening in real time right now. It's very cool. Finally, so we're, we're going we're gonna to do personal repentance. We're going to be transformed personally. We're going to intercede and mourn and long for the, the fulfillment of God's promises, His agenda. And we're going to let our hearts get conformed to it so our desires create effect, effective and fervent prayers. And finally, we're going to long for and mourn for the return of Jesus Christ. This is the one that usually trips up the most people when I share about it. It's like, it's weird. Like, what do you mean? Actually, Christians, believers in Jesus, are defined as those who long for the day of his appearing. That's like part of the definition of what it means to be a believer, scripturally. Um, Regardless of what our theological position is, we all agree that he is coming, right? To judge the living and the dead. That's in the Apostles' Creed. He's coming. And secondly, we are supposed to ask for him to come. Ask not in the sense of like, oh, come Jesus, but ask in the sense that I mentioned earlier where our desire is fully engaged, right? Think about scriptural prayers for the Lord to come. How about the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not just about healing the sick now. That's a prayer for the eternal kingdom of God to come on earth, right? (laughs) The messianic kingdom. How about the last prayer in the Bible? What is it? Come, Lord Jesus. That is not a dinner prayer, right? That is a prayer for the Messiah to come, as we read all throughout the book of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say come. So part of this process of praying for the Lord's return is partnering with the spirit and taking on the identity as the bride. We are supposed to eagerly desire 
the Lord's return. It's less about words, right? We could say, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. That's not what it's about. It's about desire. It's about the posture of our heart. Can you imagine it, uh, guys proposing to a girl and being like, I would love you. I want to marry you. And all that that means, you know, from you in terms of what you're giving up and you're giving it to this person. And they say to you, you know, I like you too. You're great. Could you just give me five years? There's so much I want to do in life before I marry you, right? Can you imagine that? And yet that's what the church is often doing to the Lord. Part of the beauty of the bride has got to be in her desire for the husband, right? So we're not going to be pure and spotless without blemish unless our desire is fixed on him, unless we have eyes only for him and we're full of longing for his coming, right? Back to that John 15, 7 passage, that's what's part of what's going to release his return is us beginning to actually desire it. If we remain in him and his words remain in us, ask whatever we desire. Um, developing, I'm not saying, oh, don't, don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying I know God has a plan and there's a day set and everything, but my point isn't that if we just desire Jesus to come back, he'd come back today. That's not my point because it's according to a timetable, but my point is it's not going to be separate from that. It's, that's going to be a part of it. We have a part to play in his coming, just like the saints have had a part to play in everything that's happened throughout history through our prayers and our posture of intercession. So 10 days is a time to develop a posture of mourning, of longing for the return of Jesus. And this is for more than 10 days. 10 days is just a catalytic season. It's a consecrated time where God is going to bring breakthroughs in these areas, and then it's going to spill over into the house of prayer and into the citywide church throughout the year. And there's going to be other things that happen as well. And then it'll come back around again. And it's a rhythm of revival to both birth revival and birth unity and then to sustain it by providing an annual catalytic season that we can walk into together. I want you to just imagine with me the upper room, 120 in the upper room, praying, seeking the Lord with one accord, and then the Holy Spirit was poured out, right? Now, I want you to imagine the church now. We're not 120 anymore, are we? The family's grown a little bit. There's 2 billion people who would consider themselves Christians if you ask them, or more. Now, I want you to imagine a remnant of those. Millions of people gathered in cities around the globe doing the same thing those early disciples did, waiting on the Lord in one accord for 10 days, right? How would God respond to that type of a global upper room? All right. Father, we love you. Lord, we believe your word. Lord Jesus, we believe that you get what you pray for. And we ask, Father, that this would mark our hearts, Lord, that we would say yes in our hearts to your prayer, Lord, and that we would commit ourselves to being instruments of your will in this regard in the city of San Antonio, in the U.S. and around the world, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. How much time do we have?
praise God. Whoa, what's going on here? The church is, is, is moving to pray around the 10 days of awe between Jewish holidays. Something's happening. In fact, where are we standing? Where are we sitting tonight? We're sitting in David's tent, right? Amos 9-1-1 says, in that day. In that day, we're here. God is shifting. And... In Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, it says that these are the feasts of the Lord. It does not say that they're Jewish feasts. Now, we know that Jewish people celebrate the feasts of the Lord. They have done since they were given the edict. And we know that two of the feasts will be celebrated in the millennium, right? Passover and Tabernacles. These are divine appointments. When we worship, right, faith is released in the room, okay? And something happens. It's almost like the doors of, even when we worship tonight, the presence comes. It almost like the, 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 the portals of heaven are opened, right? And the presence of the Lord comes. He needs our faith, our worship and our faith go up, and something happens, and the presence of God comes, and we feel it and can, can connect with it. God has divine appointments. The Hebrew word, and trust me, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. My wife would tell you that. She grew up in a, in a Jewish yeshiva, so she's my Hebrew connection. But the Hebrew word in Leviticus 23 is moed, which means divine appointment. It is a divine time, and God has a calendar. Now, don't get me wrong, church. God's very happy for Jews to be Jews and for Gentiles to be Gentiles. God loves pizza and Chinese food. <laughs> he made the nations. Whenever I start to talk about Jewish and Gentile things, the first thing I will always say is that we are co-heirs together. There is no difference between us in the spirit. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile in our salvation. It says that we are co-heirs together with who? No, it doesn't say that. It says that we are co-heirs together with Israel. And we are living in that day... And God has awakened Israel. God has a firstborn child that he made covenants to. Parents in the room, raise your hands. Will you be faithful to your firstborn child, whether they walk with God or not? Will you love them just the same? Will you cry out for them most probably even more if they're retrobrate, like my son is? I know the father's heart. 
for his firstborn children. I know the father's heart for all of his children. And this time is about the father. It is about the father of God releasing his heart for his family to be restored to himself. You know, there was for a very short period of time, Jew and Gentile walked in great unity. It was called the first century church, maybe the first and the second century church. And there was great unity. And the children from the nations were so appreciative to be connected with Israel and the promises and the covenants. And the Apostle Paul had to work hard to convince the, the Gentile side of the family that they were now equal. A lot of the letters to the churches are about this. Convincing the, the, the children from the nations that they were now one with Israel. But church, that oneness never was intended to eradicate the distinction between the Jew and Gentile. God created both. And within the context of the one new man is a Jewish and Gentile characteristic that makes up a beautiful new man, a new person that God created on the cross and through the resurrection. He, he tore down the enmity and created this beautiful new humanity, this bride. We're living in that day, and Israel is coming back to life. There's a key word here, church. It's called covenant. It's called promise. And God has made promises to his firstborn in all three aspects, of main aspects of scripture. In Torah, Deuteronomy 30. In the prophets, numerous places, but specifically Ezekiel 36 and 37. And even in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, Paul, in Romans chapter 11, talks about how Israel would be dispersed. But there would come a time where he would bring them back, and then, I sometimes say I'm going to preach the and then sermon. Because as Christians, we haven't understood fully the plight of Israel, which Paul tries to explain to us in Romans 11. There are three plights, three journeys for the people of Israel. The first is, in verse 1 to 6, is the remnant. And Paul said there will always be a remnant. I'm a remnant. My wife is a remnant Jewish believer. Paul said there would always be Jewish believers. The second pathway Verse 7 relates to the Jews that would reject Messiah. And the blindness and deafness would continue on them. It didn't start there. It actually was released through Isaiah. Because Israel had become so retrobate and so after their idols that, that God, that judgment was to come upon them. 
And so in his mercy, he had Isaiah, and they never understood this as a baby believer. I used to say, Lord, how could you put a blindness and a deafness over my people? But in his mercy, he put a blindness and a deafness because they would be sealed for the end. And that's where we are. We're living in that day. And from a father's perspective, and it helps us if we can understand this equation, because it is the very power equation to all four points that Jonathan spoke to us about 10-day focus and John 17, the revival, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, all the, 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 the last great harvest and Israel's awakening are all wrapped up into the family of God becoming one again of the Father drawing his children to himself. And I want you to open your Bibles and take a fresh look at John 17. I'm going to cut a little deeper into the John 17 piece because we must understand and and Jonathan touched on this at the beginning. The church is in a state. The walls are broken. And it's interesting, that same scripture in Amos 9-11 that talks about David's tent being reestablished. And here we are with David's tent. <laughs> God has a sense of humor. He talks about... What does he talk about rebuilding? The walls. And you can look at Nehemiah, who had to, uh, the assignment of going back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he took a real good, honest look. And they were broken down. And the gates were burned. Well, let's be honest, church. The church is in a mess. It's lost respect and esteem. Nehemiah was faced with the same issue. We, he did not want to be disgraced anymore. He wanted Jerusalem to be rebuilt. But first he had to take a real honest look to know the issues so that they could be changed. John 17 is the Lord's heart cry for his family to be one. And when that Jew and Gentile dwelled together in unity and established the church, they had the glory upon them. And the world could not contain them. Rome could not contend, so it joined. The greatest power of the world could not contend with the power of the kingdom of God because it had the glory upon it. And the Father is wanting to pour the glory upon us. But there's a breach in the foundation. And he is wanting to pour out his mercy to begin to fix it. 
But before it can be fixed, like a, can, can an alcoholic get free of alcoholism until they recognize they have a problem? Can we get free of the issues in the church that are dividing us and separating us until we can begin to recognize and take an honest look? John 17, unity. Take a real good look this week. Reread it in your quiet time. Verse 6 to 19. Who's it about? Who's he praying for? He's praying for his Jewish disciples who established the church. And then in verse 20, he almost prays a very peculiar prayer. He says, now I'm going to pray for those that will believe in me through your message. The Lord anointed his disciples and the initial Jewish believers. They were the new Israel to fulfill Israel's call to be a light to the nation so they could bring the gospel out to the nation. They could bring Yeshua out and the children from the nations could be grafted into her as one. But when the church began to merge with Rome, Rome was already greatly anti-Semitic. Why? They were pantheists. They worshipped many gods, and the Jews only worshipped one. They were monotheists. They worshipped one god. And the Romans, the Jews, were always a challenge. They were a thorn in the side of the Romans, and they were anti-Semitic. And as the church merged with Rome, what what may have considered to be the greatest deal to nationalize the church. Christianity would become the world religion. Unbelievable business deal. But Rome insisted that the Jewish roots and heritage and connection be severed. And for centuries, two or three centuries after the fact, The church went after any Jewish or Gentile believers looking to associate back to their roots and heritage. And so the church grew up with a separate identity. And now Israel is awakened and the Lord is looking to restore his family, and is looking to return to the earth, he needs to shift us back into the fullness of identity together with Israel now that she is awakened so that the power can come. He's wanting to pour the mercy oil on the family of God to mend this breach because it's foundational to the unity of the rest. I truly believe 
that the breach between the Jew and Gentile and the family of God gave the enemy the right to bring other divisions. And I believe that as we look to mend and allow the Father to, to restore the unity between us now that there is a remnant of Israel once again to be reunited with both in the land and a messianic family of God. Church, our relationship with Israel is not just about blessing them. It's about breathing life back into them. It's not just about a piece of land. It's not just about our eschatology being fulfilled. It's not just about being a spectator and watching the end and having it fit very neatly into all of what we believe. The truth is, we're never going to see the end solely through a Gentile lens because the one you man is both Jew and Gentile and the Lord is now restoring the firstborn and he is calling us, the other children, to release that life back to them. Who brought the life to you? Did not these Jewish souls lay down their lives? Most of them were crucified, hung upside down, burned in oil. They laid their lives down so that the gospel, Yeshua, could come out to the nations so that we could be one. But the enemy, who's the real Satan, who's the real enemy here, stole our identity. We will never get to the end thinking that the church is solely Israel. There's truth to the fact that Jewish and Gentile believers are Israel, but we're never complete without our connection to her. Scripture says we are co-heirs together. For the last 1,800 years, if a Jew wanted to come to be believe in, in, in Christ, they had to become a Gentile and like everyone else in the church. There was no place for Jewish identity because certain teachings wiped out those teachings about there's no Jew or Gentile anymore does not, was not referring to our identity. Look how Paul, if that was the case, why did the apostle to the Gentiles who loved his own people, who was willing to be stoned for them, who made the most of their ministry to win, win them to faith, why did he even go back under the law when he returned to Jerusalem? Paul was a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles. What mattered is Mashiach would be preached, Yeshua would be preached, salvation would be preached. But God has a firstborn child, and they are coming back to life. And if we understand Romans 11 correctly, 
the children from the nations. You are the ones that have been given the mercy of God as a result of their disobedience that now you would release that mercy back to them. Why is there such an indifference in the church in wanting to reach the Jewish people? How long would it really take with the numbers, the sheer numbers involved, if we pressed in? Church, the Jews are not just another nation. As most Christian theological teachings have demoted them to be. They are covenant. Read Ezekiel 36. I will show myself holy. And it's not because of what you have done. In fact, you profaned my name when you were sent through the nations. But I will bring you back to your land. I have covenanted. You are my firstborn child. And the, the rest of us here are the other children in the family. But God is wanting to awaken us to the role to release that life back to them and to release the supplication back to them. It's about this one new man. It's about relationship and personality and connecting. It's about me as a Jewish believer connecting with my, with my brother David and my brother Jonathan and everyone else in the room. It's about us being one together, but understanding that God is looking to establish a Jewish monarch on the face of the earth of which we are supposed to be its priests and representatives. And so, if you like, the train, the church is on a train track that needs a switch. You know, when the train goes back into those big stations in the cities, it hits a switch, right? We are at that juncture. If that big train station, think of it at a moment that it's Jerusalem, the Lord is looking to reestablish his throne upon Jerusalem. He's looking to keep his covenants to redeem and restore his firstborn. And so the, the family, the rest of the children, need to switch tracks. Give Jerusalem no rest, the word says, until I make her a praise in all of the earth. This is not just about our end time stuff. End time theories coming into place. This is about the firstborn being awakened. And us being awakened to the fact that they are integral. And the father's covenants being restored through their awakening. Is the end time plan of God of which we have a major role to play, both in intercession and in evangelism to understand that our firstborn brethren will come back to life, doesn't it say? 
in Romans 11, that the veil is only there until the fullness, the full number of the Gentiles comes in. And in this way, it's, there's a comma there, in this way all Israel will be saved. So God is shifting. He's shifting us. He, he doesn't, he, he's not looking to make Gentiles Jews. But he's shifting us and our mindset back to Jerusalem, back to his calendar so we can connect with these things and begin to experience a greater presence of his power. When we realize that the awakening of the Jewish people and, and our role in it, and we begin to realign the gospel in and with Israel, and we begin to push for this baby to come forth, we're getting very close to the end. But make no mistake, we can't come into our inheritance. Yeshua can't come back until the Jewish people are awakened. We can withhold the Lord's coming. There is a plan to awaken us now, to restore our mindsets and our hearts in and with Israel to prepare us for the coming of the Lord. And there is a major role for us to play in, in praying for the peace of Jerusalem, praying for the salvation of the Jewish people and our role in being able to reach them will unlock, what does it say? What, how much greater fullness will Israel's restoration bring? What will their restoration bring but life from the dead? If you look at Ezekiel 37, that's the resurrection. That's the first resurrection. We're gonna, those, those will be raptured up with the Lord. It says the dead in Messiah will raise first. Blessed are those who are part of the first resurrection. And those that are raptured, let's not get into when. Okay, but we come back to rule and reign. But there is business for us to be done. There is a plan now. The best way I could describe it in the two minutes that I have left before we go into prayer is from the father's point of view, think about it for a moment. He's been very equitable to his family. He spent 2,000 years individually on the Jewish people between Abraham and Yeshua. And then from Jesus to the modern day, he has spent 2,000 years individually on the children from the nations. He's now shifting. That's why you've got this whole blessing, this whole move back to Israel, this whole blessing. But we haven't fully understood 
the whole equation because we are wrapped up. We have a role to play in breathing life back into the people of Israel because the word tells us that they will be saved. But it's not going to happen on its own just between God and the Jewish people. When has ever God done anything on the face without using us? Sometimes I question why, but he always does. And the church now must realign back into the fullness of our identity in and with Israel to prepare for the Lord's coming, but also to fulfill her role. You have an end time role to fulfill that will unlock the end time revival. And that is to call on the breath and the winds that it may enter the people of Israel. Remember Ezekiel 37, after the first proclamation about the dry bones, what does it say? There was no breath in them. And the Lord and the and the second proclamation is all about the breath. That's where we are. The land's being restored, right? They're being brought back. They're not, they're not saved yet. There's a remnant, 15 to 20,000 Jewish believers, thousands, maybe 10, 15,000 Arab believers. They're desperate for our help. They're desperate from the, for the for for, for the strength of the church in the nations. They need their hands lifted, their arms lifted, and their hands raised so that the enemy can be defeated. The believing church is the front line of this battle. And up to this point, because the church has been so disconnected and has not understood the significance of this restoration, we have not been able to, to begin to even contemplate the last end time roles that God is calling us into. John 17, unity, foundationally, there's a breach and it needs healing. And if we breathe our prayers and our hearts and our souls into that restoration and work to bring unity once again in the family of God to please the Father's heart, we will be stepping towards the rebuilding of the walls that it talks about in Amos and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that begin to address the unity and build up the unity in the family so that Abba can pour out the power and pour out the glory. The Israel peace is the end time peace to the revival that the church is looking for. But up to this point, we've still been looking in the wrong place. It is the power equation. It is the resurrection. It's the fullness. And as we look and sow in towards that,
and really begin to get that revelation deep in our spirit, we will begin to enter into the greatest battles for the kingdom of God, which is for Israel's salvation and the last great harvest of souls. And these two are intricately linked together. We may not see a major opening of Israel up until the end, but the Lord is looking to restore our hearts, to heal our hearts, to break off replacement theology from our thinking, which the enemy sowed into the church, thinking that she's complete without Israel, to break off bloodline anti-Semitism, coldness, indifference in our hearts towards the Jewish people and to begin to get on the same page with the Father who must keep his promise to his family. And they will be our family according to the word of God. By faith, we must see them as such and not see them as they are and begin to press into that awakening. But before we can do that, we must allow Holy Spirit to change us, to change the mindset and the heart that has been stony towards the Jewish people. Hallelujah. I like the way Paul phrased it in Romans. He says if talking about the Jewish people, if their rejection meant salvation for the Gentile nations, what would their acceptance mean but life from the dead for the whole earth? Like, Let that sink in. What would their acceptance be but life from the dead for the whole earth? And so this isn't a, a blind endorsement of just blessing a the nation, but actually seeing the purposes of God in the oneness and in the distinction. Um, did you want to mention your book now? I'll mention it. Um, he's written several books. This is the newest one, came out last year. Um, a uh, fantastic, deep, deep work. I feel like this, what you spoke tonight, should, it's just like the back cover of the book. <laughs> And so he's only got a few copies with him. I asked him to save one specifically for Doree since she's uh, praying with us and is going to lead us in prayer. But there's a few of them. If you want to pick one up tonight, how much are, are they? $25. And then uh, they're available online. It is a 400-page book. They're almost like Bible pages in here. But anyway. Uh, Can I just so, say one more thing? Yeah. There is a lot for us to learn about this time. And uh, some of what I may have said tonight could have caused an alarm in you. And this book will challenge you. But family, we need to be challenged. Both Jewish and Gentile believers need to be challenged into this restoration because it's the pathway. It puts us onto the right track to take that train into Jerusalem to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Amen.
So let's set our hearts back on the King of Glory. We're going to get into worship and then uh, invite you to pray and intercede with us as we pray about these things.